Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and change makers. Are you a creative entrepreneur struggling to find your way forward and ready to give up? Do you dream of becoming an artist, but you're afraid of what people will say? If so, this conversation is for you. Miriam Shulman is an artist, teacher, podcaster, business coach, and author of Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. In our conversation, we explore many of the principles in her book, from choosing to believe you are an artist to selling happy endings. She also shares the five P's of running a successful creative business, leading from your values, embracing your inner weirdo, why polarization is essential, and how myths and beliefs of creativity can guide us throughout our lives. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 659. Miriam, welcome to Getting Work to Work. You are the first interview of 2023. I'm excited to have another guest on the show. Woohoo! <laughs> Thanks for inviting me and being first for 2023. What an honor. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, one of the things, there, there's so many things that I'm just blown away with what you're doing, but one of the things that captured my attention immediately was how you sign off a lot of the things that you do, and that is stay inspired. So I thought I'd ask you, what fuels your inspiration on a on a given day? What a beautiful question. So inspiration can, is not something you get from inside. We think it is, but it's always from outside comes the inspiration. You bring it into yourself. And then the creativity is what you do with the your outside sources. And the easiest way for me to get inspired is just to start walking. So once I'm in motion, especially if my phone is put away, uh, once I'm in motion, it helps if you're in nature, but not necessarily, and then you will get those creative ideas and juices flowing. Yeah. It's like part of your bloodstream if you're a creative person. Yeah, I love that. And, it, and there's oftentimes this tension between being willing to go do that, knowing that that's where a lot of inspiration comes from and being in your workspace, always working. I I think there is a tension there at times. There is. So the other half of that is not waiting until you're inspired to get to work because inspiration finds you working. I think I forget who said that. Maybe check close. I don't know. But Julia Cameron had a beautiful way of putting it. And she's the author of The Artist's Way. But this is something I heard her say recently. So she's a woman in her 70s. And she said that creativity is a bit like sex, that you may not always be in the mood. But once you get started, it's really good. I love that Julia Cameron just keeps them coming. I mean, from morning pages to that tidbit, that's wonderful. That's right. And that was something she said in the last few years. So that's why I said a woman in her 70s and she's still got it. So one of the things about you is that you're all about art. You're about the artist. And so when you are thinking of the word artist, what does that mean to you? What the past two years have really shown me and taught me is being an artist. Initially, for me, it was about being a painter. Mm. But now with the book, so much of my creativity went into the book. I consider that my art. 
And as you know, Chris, as a podcaster, that's an art form as well. So whatever you do and whatever you touch can become your art. So in many ways, we are all creators. We are all co-creators. If you are spiritual or religious, when when God said, to, you know, we're making a man in my image, that is what that meant is he was creating human beings to be co-creators in the world. That's a powerful definition of artist because oftentimes we think of just that, you know, brush to canvas type mentality. I love that it's all encompassing for you. Yes. It's really anything that's going to give your life meaning. And that is why the world needs art, especially the traditional art in the way we think about it more than ever, that whether it's film, poetry, podcasts, writing, dance, visual art, these are all the things that give our life meaning. And whenever there's an existential crisis, like what's happened the past few years with the pandemic, World War II, the atomic bomb, anytime there's an existential crisis, you see beautiful art flourishing as a result of it. And that's because the, the people crave the need to create and give themselves that immortality and that perfect um, coming together of we as artists need to create even more and people as who are consuming the art need that art even more to create meaning in their lives. Out of chaos comes beauty. I love that. I was thinking about your journey of becoming an artist. Like at what point did you finally embrace that title? So I always considered myself an artist, just not a professional one. <laughs> so when I was in the fourth grade, I was a brand new kid in school. I was definitely the class nerd. And when the teacher decided I was actually class artist, I liked that title much better. And I chose to believe her. And the truth is, Chris, at that point, I didn't think I was an artist. I wasn't the kid drawing in my margins and my notebooks. I wasn't doing any of those things. I'm not even sure that she saw anything in me other than maybe she felt sorry for this girl who didn't know how to dress like everybody else. You know, like, I, I don't know. Because all I really got to do as class artist, air quotes, was glue toothpicks on a pumpkin for our jack-o'-lantern. And the teacher told me exactly where she wanted me to put the toothpicks. But, but from that point on, I said, oh, I'm an artist. And I did start doing things like drawing and working on my drawings and, and thought better of myself in that way. And it became my new identity. And I never forgot the truth of who I am, which is that I am an artist, but I wasn't always a professional artist. And I, and I love that distinction too, because it shows that there's, a, there's an evolution of being an artist that takes place from... The first step is owning that label for yourself as artist, but then moving it to a level at which you can live from it. That's right. So that's a lot of what I talk about in the in the first chapters of my book, Artpreneur. Chapter one is choose to believe. So I'm talking about, and, and your listeners can get chapter one for free. Can I drop a link for them? Of course. Okay. So shulmanart.com forward slash believe and shulman is the spelled like school, S-C-H. So shulmanart.com forward slash believe you can get chapter one totally free. And that is my story about what I said, the fourth grade teacher. But then I create an invitation for everyone else to choose to believe that they are an artist. 
And what gets in the way is then what I talk about in the next chapter. So whenever we are asked to take, we ask ourselves to take risks or the world asks us to take a risk, our brain does not like risk. We have evolved for survival, not danger, mm-hmm. not, of not goal achievement. So whenever uh, we are, we're feeling that something is risky, our brain will sense fear because that's what its automated response is, is to be afraid. And it will provide you all of the reasons why that scary thing won't work for you. And the smarter you are, and I would even say the more creative you are, the better you are going to be at coming up with those bullshit stories about why this scary thing won't work. So you have fear that leads to doubt. Notice how I didn't say excuses. You know, I've heard other business gurus like the Gary Vaynerchuk's of the world, like don't make excuses. Here's the thing. We don't think they're excuses when we hear these thoughts in our brain because they feel real. They feel real. That's why I call them doubts. So you have fear. Fear leads to doubt. And when you have doubts, you'll do one of two things. You'll start researching <laughs> all the ways to do something so you won't fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's procrastinating. learning. And then you fall into that rabbit hole. And a lot of times at the end of that rabbit hole, you end up not doing anything because you're just more confused about what to do. Or you're just like that deer in the headlights. You don't know what to do. And you're frozen. So. Either way, it's going to lead, that fear leads to doubt. The doubt leads to confusion and overwhelm, which leads to procrastination, not because you're a bad person, but it makes sense if you don't know what the next right step is, it makes sense not to act. I love the passion that's coming out. I mean, like your your passion just shot through the roof as you were talking about that. Yeah, I, I get on my soapbox very easily. <laughs> No, that's great. Because I think we need people like you who want to dispel these myths and beliefs. I mean, they're not just myths. I think they're embedded stories within us. That that's just- right. And you have to stop shaming and blaming yourself or letting other people shame and blame you. This is a natural response, Yeah, a natural response to feel afraid and to have doubts. And what I do throughout Artpreneur is call out the most common doubts to help you see yourself and teach you how to reframe your thinking. But I, it's not just a mindset book. It also has very practical steps for helping you get there. But what I talk about, what I was going to say in chapter two, is we're always so worried about those bears outside of the cave and the tigers outside of the cave. Guess what? There's snakes inside the cave. So <laughs> if you are not moving, if you're not changing, if you're not evolving, there's risks in staying the same. What's interesting is I'm I'm flashing back to this moment early in my career where I I wrestled against how fast technology was moving, and and I just wanted it to stay the same. I wanted it to stay within my control, and I think the biggest evolution that I've had to make as an artist, as a business owner, has been accepting just how fast things change. And even allowing myself to change an ounce more than trying to be stagnant. Yeah. And and I'm going to use the what you just said as an opportunity to step on my next soapbox, which is social <laughs> media. Can, can I can I go there go already? Yeah. Okay. So 
Uh, one of the biggest pushbacks, because you were talking about change, and um, one thing that had worked really well for a few years was this free social media ride. For some people, it worked really well. So some people, it never worked well, but for some people, it worked really well. And one of the biggest pushbacks I got from one of the editors in the book is like, well, she's not talking enough about social media. I think she's old fashioned. And so when I got that comment back, I was like, oh, I didn't build a strong enough case here about why social media actually is a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. So when I started my book, the research showed that the average engagement rate on Instagram was 1%. That was when I was started writing my book in 2021. By the time I got those developmental edits back and I went to add more research and check on the research, that average engagement rate had dropped. So let's talk about what 1% means. That means if you have a thousand people, 10 people are engaging with your posts. It, if, and this is on Instagram, mm -hmm. it had dropped to 0.6%, which means out of a thousand people, now only six people. Wait, wait, what about the influencers? What about all those people right. who are telling us we're just not doing enough? Mm -hmm. We need to do more. We, you know, let me teach you how to get more engagement on social media and you can pay me lots of money so I can teach you that. Okay. The average influencer's engagement rate is 1.18%. Wow. So doing all that stuff, the average person would be six people out of a thousand. The average influencer gets 12. Chris's jaw just dropped for those of you who can't see what he looks like right now. My jaw did drop. And let's not even blame the algorithm because here's, here's the, this is like brand, brand new. I thought part of my Instagram strategy for promoting the book would be go, doing Instagram lives every day. Yeah. And I've been doing that different times during the day. So Chris, I have 25,000 followers on Instagram and that's, that's no joke. That's a lot of people. Uh, when I go to hit live, right before you hit that live button on Instagram, it will tell you how many of your followers are on the app. Oh, interesting. Out of 25,000 people, how many people do you think are on, of my followers are on the app at a random time of day? 200 people. You would think. The most that there was was 65. Whoa. And I know that you said 200 to be conservative. Like you probably hoped it was more, right? Right. So I, I just stopped doing that. I just, I did Instagram lies up to a point and then I canceled the rest because that's not 65 people that the algorithm is choosing to show it to. That's not 65 people who are joining our live. That's just on the scrolling through the app at any given moment. So people are just not on it. I mean, talk about a belief in many ways that we need to like shatter. <laughs> Because I feel like there is this constant drum of if you're not there, how are people going to find you? And so it's, is it sunk cost bias at that point that we've developed all this time in social media and relationships that we think that it will eventually pay off? Or is, it, is there some other story at play here? Yeah, like we're, I'm asking that question of myself and my team every day because I know for my book contract and future book contracts, publishers are looking at things like those numbers. 
Uh, but in terms of making money, so this is the good news. There is a way to make money. And th that is what I talk about both on the podcast, the Inspiration Place, as well as in the book. And this is also what Marie Forleo and Ryan Dice are all saying. So we got the king and queen of marketing. They're all saying the future of marketing is not social media, it's email. I've heard that as well, too. And I think that that really leads this powerful conversation away from things out of our control and trying to bring the control as much as we can back to ourselves. Exactly. And just to put it back into numbers, so we talked about a thousand people following you. On average, you can get six people to see what it is that you and engage with it and open your post, look at your post. Okay, so if you have a thousand people on your email list, the average open rate on email is 25%, right? Mm -hmm. So that's about 250 people. Now, here's the difference, Chris. Not only is it 250 people, but you were talking about what we can control. Mm -hmm. So when we write an email, we write the subject line, and the person who receives the email, they get to decide whether or not they're going to open that email based on you know what our subject line is and what kind of emails we write. On Instagram, the algorithm decides if they even see it. Yeah. So if you want control over your art career, email is the way to go. What's fascinating, Miriam, is like as as you're talking, it's like there's there's this interesting confluence of art, creativity, business, entrepreneurship. I mean, you're not just one thing, you are many things. And and I'm curious how you balance all of that as you work on your art. Well, you need help. <laughs> so I do have uh, support. When I first started getting help, it was in the form of an intern. And I had unpaid interns over the summer and then I decided one, one September came along, I was like, well, I'm not giving up this help. And I went to my local college and I hired someone for 10 hours a week. That was about seven or eight years ago, by the way. She still works for me. She's now full time. I no longer pay her $10 an hour, which is, <laughs> nice. but a lot of us can't afford $100 a week for that kind of help. Mm -hmm. And I called it my business babysitter. So at the time I had two kids at home that, Thank God they're both independent and they have left my nest, which was my job as a mother. But back then, the way I saw it was instead of paying for a babysitter to watch my kids so I can Mickey Mouse on my business and do things like edit keywords on Etsy or eBay or my website or whatever the hack platform it happened to be at the time, uh, I would have an intern do it and I could spend time with my family or I can spend time with my art or I can spend time doing my self-care or I can spend time going to New York to a museum and I left anything that didn't have to be done by me for somebody else. And now since that time when I first started um, with it started in that small place, but I don't edit my own podcast. Um, I stopped editing my own videos. I'm still the art director and the visionary and all these things. So it's still an expression of my art, but I'm not doing anything that doesn't have to be done by me if if I can help it. Was that a challenging transition to make or was it very pragmatic for you? It's always challenging. So if you listen to my words carefully, up until recently, I was editing my videos. So there, there are certain things that I have trouble letting go of. I like to know how things work. 
So sometimes a little too much decision-making does come through me. And if I wanted to grow even faster, I would delegate some of that to my team as well. Yeah. And I think that's something important for all of us to hear because I think any artist, they're they're naturally inclined to want to do everything themselves because yeah. it aligns with their vision of what they're doing and who they are. It, it can be a curse to be able to do multiple things well, because then you think, well, I can do it and I can do that. And and the myth of that you're saving money if you do it yourself. And a lot of times that's a lie we're telling ourselves because time is also money. We have a limited amount of time. And even if, Chris, I were to say, wave a magic wand and grant you with like 26 hours in your day, you don't have extra energy. Like your energy is a limited resource. So our time is a limited resource and our energy is a limited resource as well. There's so many lies running through our head, aren't there? Yes. Oh my gosh. We need a bumper sticker that is don't believe um, every thought you think. Yeah. Every car. Every car, every podcast, every website. Yes. (laughs) Every social media platform. So one of the things, Miriam, that you talk a lot about is embracing the inner weirdo. and. Of the many things that I've seen that captivated me, because I like to think that I'm weird. I like to think that a lot of creative people are weird. But what does that actually look like in practice? So the word weird actually originated from Scotland. And if you were forced to read Macbeth, as I was in middle school, they had the weird sisters were the three witches who predicted Macbeth's faith. And the word weird actually originally meant fate, destiny, or even magic. Hmm. So what happened is over the hundreds of years since then, as the supernatural became vilified, you know, the witch hunt trials and all that, then the word weird took on a negative connotation. But what weird actually means is fate, destiny, and magic. So when you embrace your inner weirdo, you are actually embracing what is magical about yourself. I'm just sitting with that. That's I, I love that thought. What is magical about myself? And what I go through in that chapter, Embrace Your Inner Weirdo, is helping you f- uncover those pieces of yourself that you may be dismissing because perhaps it comes easy to you. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps you you think anybody can do this or be, or because you're different and you're trying to become the same as other people because you're not embracing that what those parts of you that is quirky and weird and weird in the most wonderful way possible. Right. What did it take for you to embrace your inner weirdo? It's been a journey for sure. Um, when I first started, Uh, teaching online art classes, I looked around at the other online art teachers. And at the time, the the ones that were on my radar were blonde and Midwestern. They didn't look like me. They didn't talk like me. They weren't a Jewish New York girl. And I thought I had to hide those parts of myself to be accepted. And I thought that I had to hide things that I believed so that people who voted differently than me would accept me. 
And over time, I think my biggest awakening happened really in 2020, with, with, which was true for a lot of us with George Floyd and the social justice movement, was really understanding that if you don't take a stand on things, people are going to make assumptions about you anyway, and they're going to like you or dislike you, and you might as well have them dislike you for the right reasons. So from that point forward, I made sure that people know what my values are. And it doesn't mean that every single Republican conservative woman from Texas has stopped following me. I did lose some of them, but I also gained some people that probably wouldn't have followed me if they didn't know what my values were and felt in alignment with that. Was that a big shift for you as you connected that values piece? I mean, that's something that we often hear, but it's something different when you live it. Yes. So definitely that shift was huge for me. That um, Also, I think that was the year that I turned, I was either 50 or 51. So turning 50 was a big turning point for me as well. Right now I'm 54. So I've been 50 for a few years, but turning 50 was definitely a, a different moment for me, an awakening for me of really giving, you know, zero Fs about what other people think. <laughs> yeah. um, so there was some of that just comes with maturing as well. When you're younger, you think everybody cares about what you think. And as you get older, you realize nobody really cares. You know? yeah. Like nobody's really paying attention. So you might as well do what you want. Not, not, I don't mean hurt other people. Obviously you love people and you're kind and you care, but the things that we think that matter so much and we're so self-conscious when we're young and don't really matter. Yeah. That gives me a lot of hope because I think I've, I've struggled a lot with wanting to make sure people identify with what I'm saying, like what I'm saying, like me. And it can be more exhausting than trying to do everything around me in terms of like all the stuff I do for work. Yeah. I, well, that's a form of people pleasing. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes people pleasing is really lying about what you believe in who you are. Not, I'm not saying that you're doing that, but it is exhausting to live that life and being worrying so much. And then are people really liking the true you? And when you look at the the most successful people in the world, love them or hate them. I mean, I'm talking about the people I hate, hate the most, <laughs> like dislike the most in this world to the people I love the most in this world. They're not in a messy middle. They say exactly what they believe. And that's what draws people to them. And there is no money in the middle. So being being polarizing is really, uh, in terms of making a profitable business, the better way to go. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. I think there is that challenge of learning to accept that and live it and get through those initial p speed bumps of, of, when that reality hits and and you start feeling the repercussions positive and negative of living that i think there's a lot of learning from that as well yeah so i mentioned earlier uh about looking at other online art teachers who were from the midwest so i thought i had to tamper my accent well that was that was a good 10 years ago i'm now at such a point of self acceptance that i had a troll recently 
comment underneath one of my ads, a video ad, you have an ugly voice. And maybe 10 years ago, that would have triggered me. But right now I'm at the point where I just find that laughable. It was like, okay, it's so ugly and I'm taking that to the bank. You know, so like I felt sorry for her. I felt sorry for her for saying that. Because even if I think that about somebody else's voice, I don't feel the need to tear them down to make myself feel better. When you set out to be an online art teacher, did you feel that your skills had to be at a certain level in order to be accepted as a teacher? Or were you able to just kind of embrace where you were at as an artist in order to teach others? That's a great question. So I just want to give you the to- you and the listeners a timeline. So I left the corporate world over 20 years ago. And I was making a living as an artist for 10 years before I started teaching online. I know that there are a lot of online uh, people who teach online classes who says, oh, you can teach anything even if you just started. I'm not so sure that I agree with that. I do think you need to have a certain level of mastery before you can start teaching. And I was at the place where I had a level of mastery that I was comfortable sharing that. Yeah, I I love that approach too, because I think um, we've all been around the 20-year-old life coaches who haven't lived enough life to be able to coach you. And it's like, that's kind of sometimes the point of view of like, oh, I just learned how to watercolor today. I'm going to teach you the 10 best ways to do it. Yeah. And I've seen people like that who come to me for help. And in the beginning, I didn't realize that they didn't have the the background because they'd have this sophisticated funnel set up already. And then when I like peel back the layers, it's like, oh, she never sold any artwork before. Oh, she never taught in person before. And so I think you need to have some experience, especially teaching online. I think it's really, now a lot of my messaging in the book you'll find is it's important to do things in the real world before you take it online because online you don't have enough interaction to get that feedback. And I taught in person before I took it online. So that way I could anticipate what the struggles were with a beginning student. So I knew how to teach it. All right. So what I was saying before, I've been doing this for 20 years and it was 10, it was about halfway through that I started to teach online. And then in terms of the podcast, I added that on in 2018. So that was about four or five years ago. And then the coaching was about four years ago. So again, you know, I have my... I'm not one of these people who, you know, I'm trying to sell my art one year and the next year is here's a course. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I, there's a, there's a, meth, me, um, it's methodical. It, there's a purpose to it. There's a point to the, the growth and trajectory. Um, it makes sense to me at least. At what point through this growth did you, did you take the word artist and entrepreneur, slam them together and create the lovely title Artpreneur? Uh, that that came about the day before the book proposal was due to the publisher. My agent and I were scratching our heads. Uh, at one point, I thought art boss, but like art boss, that's so overdone. You know, girl boss, art boss, this boundary boss, like so overdone. So yeah, artpreneur, it's, be- it's a beautiful word. It is. Like when I saw it come through my email, it captivated me because it's like, 
I like the fact that it's about, as I said earlier, creating a life, creating a living. It's not just creating art. That can be the hardest part for people to really wrap their mind around is the business side of things. Yeah, it is a business and it is hard when you go looking for advice and so you go to these business podcasts and they're talking about weight loss coaching. <laughs> like I don't know how to make this work for me. Right. So a lot of what I'm doing is I'm taking traditional business principles and really translating it for creatives to understand how this does apply to you. So what are the five fundamentals for building a su successful art business that, that people can start wrapping their mind around? Okay. So the five-part framework, they all begin with the letter P. So production is starting with like, what are you producing? So whether that's films, poems, paintings, podcasts, sneakers, whatever it is that you're producing, that's your production. Do you have enough product to make a business out of it, which works hand in hand with where you're pricing? And often when people come to me, the first thing we do together is we do a math problem. It's not calculus. It's just how much do you have to sell? What's your capacity for creating it? So let's say your capacity for creating products each week, how much are you selling it for? And does that add up to the income you're looking for? Because so many times the answer is not even close. And they hadn't even done that basic math problem. Like I'll, somebody will say to me, oh, I, I priced this at $100. I say, well, how long did it take you? And I find out all day. So I'll say to her or him, I'll say to her, uh, so do you understand that even if you sold everything that you're creating and you created a new one every single day, five days a week, that you are on a fast track for making $24,000 if you sell it everything and painting all day. So that's not a success formula. So you got to look at what what is your what are you producing? Can can you price it higher or do you need to sell something different? What when it, when when do you need to sell something different? Well, maybe if you're doing hand crocheted um coffee cup warmers that take you <laughs> several hours. I don't know. Like I, you know, maybe it's a painted rock. It sounds funny when I say it that way, but this is what people write to me about. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, the problem is I can't find a big enough audience. So they think their problem is that they don't have enough people when really the problem is what they're making or what they're pricing it at. So the next part is prospecting. So where do we find those people, especially for not relying on social media anymore? Right. Okay. So there's three ways to build your audience. So the, the third P is prospecting. You need to build your audience. So the first way I would say is your universe. Those are any kind of organic methods. Yes, social media still has a place. It's much more powerful to build your audience though in real life. The second place is advertising and I'm talking about earned publicity. So for example, me coming onto this podcast or Chris, you um, getting featured in somebody else's blog, something like that. So publicity is the second way. And the third way is paid. So perhaps you are paying for these press opportunities or paid ads. So those are the three ways of building your audience. They all work. It's great to do all three. Um, that's prospecting. And then 
The fourth fundamental is promotion. And I really mean sales. It's just promotion starts with the letter P, but selling. And then the fifth is being productive, not just with your art, but with all the other things you have to do. So your productivity. As you've shared that with artist after artist after artist, is there one or two that artists tend to struggle with the most? Yeah, most people are using Instagram as a sales mechanism and they do not have an email list. Like they have either zero email list or they have an email list, but they don't use it. So those are the two biggest things that I I see as a problem. Um, There's also people who have trouble selling. So that is why I have a, a, I think actually I have two chapters on selling and I give you a nine step formula for selling, whether that's in person or online. So I walk you through that whole sales process, breaking it down. It doesn't matter if you're introverted. (laughs) That's good. Because introverts make the best listeners and good listeners usually make really good salespeople because that's what it's about. It's not about telling isn't selling. Selling is really having compassion for the person you're standing in front of and seeing what they're, where they're at and understanding what it is they really want and need. There's something in that of just being willing to continuing to learn, continuing to not accept that you have arrived. And I, and I think in each of those P's, there, there's, there's a proactiveness that one needs in order to get what you want. That's right. So at the end of each, uh, so there's basically a chapter for each of those P's. And for some of them, there are two chapters. At the end of each of those sections in Artpreneur, I give two lists. One is what artpreneurs need to believe. So what is it you need to embody as your mindset? And then your marching orders. Okay. Now that you have the mindset, what are you actually going to do? So it's very practical. That is like, now here's what you need to do with this information. One of the chapters is about happy endings. So from an artist's perspective, what does selling a happy ending mean or even look like? Oh, okay. I love you asked that question. My husband's like, you're so dirty. So I talk about selling happy endings. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to tell a story to help explain it. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm in my 50s. And the so a lot of, a lot of my references come from my era, the 90s. So in the in 1997, Mastercard aired one of the first commercials uh, where they end with um, priceless. Have you seen those commercials, Chris? I have. Yeah. So the one the first one that aired was the father and a son, and they they're going through the whole thing. You know, father takes a kid to the ball game. You know, fifteen dollars. Of course, it's laughable now. Like all these numbers have a zero at the end right. of it. You know, like ticket to the ball game, hundred fifty dollars. Um, you know, popcorn, five dollars, soda, ten dollars. Blah 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 blah. And then they get to the last fifteen seconds, and the last fifteen seconds every MasterCard commercial is something like this. Relationship between father and son, priceless. So what MasterCard is doing is it's not talking about the benefits. It's not saying this is a two by three inch piece of plastic, which a lot of artists do, by the way. It's 23 by 46 inches. Like like that's the most important thing. I'm not saying you don't have that information, but the most important thing 
are the emotions. So MasterCard, they're not telling you about the interest rates. There's no discussion about, oh, it's a XX percent interest rate per month or or the terms. They're not even saying it's convenient for someone to have this plastic so he's not ta- ripping out his cash all the time. They're not talking about any of those things. The only thing they talk about are the emotional experience of doing something with a family member. And that formula they repeated over and over again with different emotional experiences. Now, when you're selling art, you are selling pleasure to people. And what I would hear a lot of gurus say, like like the Gary Vaynerchuk's, and it would get me so frustrated, is that you're selling a problem. Push the problem. And early on, I said, well, what's, what's the problem with an art? Oh, the problem is a blank wall. Like, no, it's not. You can stick a mirror on a blank wall. And if you are trying to sell the problem, you're going for the lowest denominator because Mm -hmm. toilet paper solves a problem. What people spend a lot of money on are things that give them pleasure. So if you think about luxury cars, Mm -hmm. the problem is getting from, you know, your house to the airport. But a lot of things can solve that problem. And, uh, you know, a Corvette or a Porsche may not be the cheapest way to solve that problem, but it might give somebody the most pleasure. So selling people on the pleasure and the emotions that your art gives them is what is going to allow you to ask the highest prices for what your products and services and sell more of it. I have not heard it stated that way before. Thank you. Thank you. I've struggled so much with that problem-focused mentality, and you just blew my mind with shifting the frame to pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. That's amazing. Seriously. like I, I've, I, I do not identify with that frame of mind at all. That's excellent. Another thing that I would love for you to touch on, Miriam, is... There is a tendency to say, find your audience first and create work that satisfies your audience. And that's people pleasing. If there's anything more <laughs> like debilitating to an artist, it's that, I, I believe. Okay. So, so many people come to me and they said, I want to create art, art that is weird. And I was like, that's what you need to do create art that is weird. People love weird things. And if you look at, and this is why in Embrace Your Inner Weirdo, I also talk a lot about music. Uh, So here's an example that right now she sounds like this is plain vanilla, Britney Spears. But when she first came on the music scene, what she was doing was brand new, like singing with Valley Talk and all those little ticks that she had. And her vocal coach could have trained those ticks out of her. But instead, they leaned into them. Now, a lot of people since then have copied that. So that's why I said her style now to us feels like it's cliche. But if you look on any huge trend, it's always pushing against what came before it. That's everything from Elvis to the Beatles to Nirvana to Alanis Morissette. Alanis Morissette, she's pushing up against the cock rock of Kurt Cobain. You know, this was like empowering women. So you just look at all the things that 
are always pushing against what came before it. The abstract expressionist, what does it mean to make a painting? But then that got pushed aside by pop art. Mm -hmm. So everything that becomes the new trend and makes a lot of money has is always pushing against what came before it, especially with art. So perhaps the better question then as an artist to ask is, what are you pushing against? Yes. What makes you quirky, different, weird? What are your values? What is it that only you can bring to the world and do that? One other question that I have for you is, you know, you've been podcasting since 2018. What do you think you've gained from podcasting that you otherwise wouldn't have gained? Relationships. It's such an easy answer for me. But I would also, I mean, there's so much. I mean, we can go, we can go down there. I'm sure you would agree that it's the best way to foster high quality relationships is by giving value first to somebody who you really admire, you really want to get to know. But it has also helped me clarify my own message. And read writing the book has done that as well. Um, going through that process has really helped me clarify a lot of my ideas. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Miriam, as we wrap up our time together, what wisdom would you like to leave with the listener? Okay, so I'm going to end it the same way I ended the book, Artpreneur, and that is keep marching forward. So there are so many times where you're taking the actions, you're taking the steps, and you may not be getting the results you want. Don't blame your boots. It's not the circumstances. Keep marching forward and inevitably results will follow. Final question for you. What book, podcast, or resource is blowing your mind right now? Apart from your own, that is. Okay. Um, I'm really digging Status by W. Marks, that status and culture. So some of the things that we talked about today, he talks about, uh, about the Beatles with their mop tops. And then as soon as that became a trend, they're like, no, 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 we're just growing our hair out. So a lot of the things that we talked about, he, he dives into that nuance, not a lot of things we talked about, but that nuance about what what makes something a trend in art he dives into. So if you're interested in that, that's a great book. I absolutely love this conversation with Miriam, and I particularly was struck by this question from our time together. What are you pushing against with your art? Maybe you want to be a trendsetter or a disruptor or just simply a prolific creator. But regardless of what it is you're pushing against, when you know the answer to that question, I believe it brings a sense of purpose and clarity to your mission. I know for myself, I'm pushing against perfectionism. I'm pushing against conformity, and ultimately I'm pushing against a boredom. What about you? What are you pushing against with your art? I hope you'll check out Miriam's book, Artpreneur, the step-by-step -step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. I pre-ordered it before it came out and I should get it next week. And so I'm really looking forward to diving into it. Even though I've been at my craft for many years, I do know that I have a lot to learn. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.